Glad that you're here. Glad that we came into the house of the Lord to worship Him, to praise Him, to hear from Him this morning. We've been uh, working our way through a character study of uh, <clears throat> different, different men in the Bible, and, and we're filtering that look through this question, um, how do we survive? How did they survive? How, not just use the word survive, although it was in that song that we sang a bit ago, so it's kind of in my mind, but how did they thrive in a decaying culture is really the question. How did they thrive in a decaying culture? Last week we looked at John the Baptist, definitely an unusual character, although I would say that if he uh, lived in these days and lived in Stevens County, he probably wouldn't really like probably a whole lot different than the rest of us, right? Like, you guys are good with eating bugs, and everybody likes honey, right? You guys, I don't see a lot of amens to that. Like, you guys got to help me out. I'm going to preach this thing to myself. We'll get out of here and get to lunch, like, if you guys will help me out a little bit. Right? He was the kind of uh, mountain man type. I said last week at the end of the service that uh, he had a particular honor. Actually, he had two. Because uh, Jesus in Matthew 11 said, hey, there's, there is nobody born of a woman like this guy. Uh, when the creator of the universe says that about somebody, that means something. That means that we should sit up and pay attention to this guy's message. That means that we should take a, a good hard look like we did last week and, and take note of what he was saying and how he went about his business and his ministry. The other thing that was particularly noted, uh, my thoughts anyway, uh, that John the Baptist was both the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament martyr. The last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament martyr, and his message was simple. It was simply this, repent and be baptized. The Lord's on his way. Like, turn from your sin, Israel. Turn from your sin. I can't say it enough. He yelled it from the wilderness. Turn from your sin. The Lord is coming my job is to prepare the way for him. Quit what you're doing. Repent. Show that repentance through the symbolic act of baptism and go the other way. And he dealt with the stuffy Pharisees, the, the, as we call them, I call them the stuffy legalist Pharisees. He dealt with them. He called them a brood of vipers. Now, you want to talk about tough language. Like We think of that as like, oh, you know, a den of snakes, like big deal. No, in that day, that was like really calling them out with some harsh language, right? And he says, who, who warned you of the coming wrath? Like, where are you getting your information? You're standing around stuffy, you know, self-righteous, legalistic Pharisees. Who warned you? Put on fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's really the, uh, the, the key that if you're going to turn, if you're going to truly repent, if we're going to truly repent, if we're truly going to heed like Elijah did in the Old Testament, where he thrived in a culture of self-righteousness and legalism and idolatry and all of that, and he was calling Israel to radical repentance back in the Old Testament, and, the, and John the Baptist in the same likeness was calling Israel in the first century to radical repentance. And we can fast forward that to today. If we're going to help people, if we're going to demonstrate a radical repentance in Jesus Christ, there has to be a marked change. And that marked change is, 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 is best noted, it's best seen by putting on fruit of righteousness in your life, right? That's how we know it's real. That's how you know it's genuine. 
if there's some actual fruit on the vine. So that was John the Baptist's whole goal. Call Israel to radical repentance, paving the way. He was a bulldozer before Christ. His message of radical repentance rang out, got everybody's attention, and then here comes Jesus. Well, we're in week seven, if you haven't been here, if you're new, or we've, in week seven of this, we've looked at these guys, really, I'll just review the list real quick, the first six character studies, we've looked at Noah, we've looked at Joseph, we've looked at King Josiah, we looked at Daniel in exile, we have looked at Nehemiah after the exile, rebuilding Jerusalem. Last week, we looked at John the Baptist, who we've just been talking about, and today, I won't tell you who we're looking at today, because I want to step back for a second. I want to just, I, would, I want to kick it into neutral for a second and talk about this word thrive, uh, because it's, it's, I was thinking about this this week as I was preparing this, thinking, <clears throat> let's all make sure that we have the same idea here uh, moving forward, and maybe I should have mentioned this with a little more emphasis week one. Uh, a few weeks later, here we go. Uh, when we hear the word thrive, what comes to your mind? Words like flourish or prosper. Words like succeed and achieve. Uh, words like win. I want to win. I mean, that's thriving, right? If you're not winning, you're not thriving. And, and uh, a great friend of mine uh, told me this story back in the, in the 70s when he was playing high school basketball. Like, they were terrible. And, and, and they just got, like he said, his, his uh, sophomore and junior year, they just stunk it up. They, did, they barely got a win. Barely got a win. And I said, Rob, I said, what made the difference? Like, you guys were pretty good your senior year. What made the difference? Uh, we were just tired of getting our butts kicked. That's what he said. He said, we're, we're just tired of losing. And so the summer before our senior year, all of us seniors said, you know what? We're tired of losing. We're tired of not thriving. And so we're just going to do whatever it takes. And so they set their mind to it, and they set their, their, uh, their skills to it. They worked hard all summer. They had a relatively successful football season, a pretty good successful basketball season, and really a great baseball season. So they kind of just, you know, kept, stayed on the incline. Uh, but that's, the, that's kind of the picture, if you will. That's kind of the idea of, of thriving. They're all good things in the right context. Our society has a view of winning. Our culture has this view of when it comes to thriving. And I'm going to define it this way. It's get all you can by any means necessary for your own consumption and for your own glory. That's how our culture views winning. Right? And so whatever it takes... Like situational ethics have driven this culture for the last three or four decades. And now we see kind of the result of that. We see the corruption, we see the decay, we see the decline in our leadership especially. But we see it across the board. We can't just blame the politicians for the guys that walk into stores over on the west side and just take whatever they want and walk out because there's no repercussion. That's not a political issue, that's a moral issue. And when, when, when our morals are situational... When our ethics are, are, are defined by whatever we think they are rather than an objective and a higher standard, that's what we're left with. So for those people that are doing those things, they think that they're winning. They think that they're thriving. They have all this free stuff to enjoy. It's all for their own consumption. 
and really, if they make the TikTok videos or if they make social media in the process of bashing out windows and grabbing TVs, hey, it's also for their own glory. That's how they see it. That's how they view it. That's our culture's view of winning right now. That's our culture's view of winning. What's our view of winning? That's the better question. Like, what's God's view of thriving? Right? The Bible has a totally different view a totally different view when it comes to thriving. I know I'm on the clock. I know I've got to get into the Word. We're almost there. <laughs> One of the passages uh, that clearly teaches the biblical worldview of thriving is found at the end of King Hezekiah's prayer in 2 Kings 19. The king of Assyria was constantly threatening Judah. King, if you remember back to when we talked about King Josiah, uh, so two kings, I think two kings before him or a couple kings before Josiah was King Hezekiah. There was only two good kings in all of Israel and Judah. Hezekiah is the first one. Josiah was the second one. Both of them, both of them were kings that came against the cultural norms of their day. Now, the threat was is the, that Assyria was threatening Judah. Uh, they're promising to wipe them out. I'm just giving you a little backstory uh, back to this passage. They were promising to wipe them out, and their promises were justifi- not justifiable. Their promises were, you could prove them out. That's what I want to say. Like, they were just taking out one people after another. The Assyrians were ruthless. And so they, were, they, had, they had the goods to prove what they were saying they wanted to do to Judah. Here's how King Hezekiah responded. Just wanted to give you that little backdrop as we jump into 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 14 through 19. And so there was this back and forth communication, and the word says in verse 14, and Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. So the, the message was from the king of the Assyrians. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. Notice what he Notice the response. He didn't panic. He didn't fret, he didn't return with accusations or retaliation. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. He took what the enemy was gonna, wanted to do, what the enemy was threatening to do, and he just put it before God. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Verse 16 says, incline your ear, Hezekiah says, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sancherib, which is the king of Assyria, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Notice that Hezekiah, it's not personal to him that this enemy was actually coming against God himself. So he puts it in the right context. He is sent to reproach the living God. Verse 17 says, Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. And here's the verse I want you to really hone in on. This is the biblical response to thriving. This is what it looks like. Verse 19 says, Now therefore, 
O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand. And here's the reason why. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God and you alone. That's God's view of thriving. That all of the kingdoms of the land, every country on the globe right now, if we want to say, how does God view a win? How does God see thriving in, a, in, in, in our world today? It's that every kingdom on the face of this planet would know that the Lord is God. And that's it. Nobody else. No golden statues. No golden calves. No Baal. No Asherah poles. No anything else. That simply God's view of winning is, is that He would be recognized as God and God alone. That's God's view of winning. That's God's view of thriving. That's how God defines success in the sense that people would see Him as God alone. Now, what happened after the prayer? 2 Kings 19 goes on to say that God gave the prophet Isaiah his reply concerning Israel and also the king of Assyria. There's a whole bunch there, but God essentially would fight the battle for him. We, we sang about that in that song, Survivor. You're my fighter. Uh, Hezekiah, Isaiah, they could say, hey, God was my fighter. We sang about it today. Is God your fighter? Like, do you live your life? Do I live my life that way? That God fights the battles that, that come my way? That's exactly what happened in 2 Kings 19. And it says in verse 35, And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. I can't fathom the view. Can you imagine half of Spokane waking up in the morning and half of the, the greater area of Spokane all being dead at the same time? What, what kind of panic would that cause? What kind, of, what, kind of, what kind of statement does that make to the rest of the nations that want to take Israel out when their number one enemy, the one that has all the goods to prove up that they could try to take out Judah because they've been taking out everybody else, that 185,000, that's a pretty good number, right? That's like what, six times? The population of Stevens County, seven times. Everything that God does is to show that He alone is the Lord God. And nobody reflected that better than the guy we're going to study today. And that's Christ Himself. That's Jesus. Everything that Jesus did was Father-appointed and Father-glorifying. If you don't get anything else out of today, everything, you read through the Gospels, Everything that Jesus did was Father appointed. This is appointed for Him to do. And Father glorifying. There's no parlor tricks. There's no shell game. There's no sleight of hand. There's no shuffle in the deck, pull out the, you know, nine of spades. It's not that, right? That's how our culture wants to try to portray, portray Jesus' miracles. That somehow, some which way, you know, somebody just didn't get it. You just weren't quick enough on the draw. You were staring over here. You were staring over there. That's how our culture wants to portray it. Today we're going to look at the first of many events where Jesus stepped into 
stepped in to deal with a problem. And he stepped in to deal with a problem, and I'm going to take that last little statement out of 2 Kings 19. Jesus steps in to deal with the problem so all the kingdoms of the earth may know that he is the Lord God. I'm going to take those two components and just make that statement. The reason why Jesus stepped into so many situations in so many people's lives was to show that he was who he said he was. And that's why, that's why we believe. That's why we trust. That's why we walk in faith. So turn your Bibles. We'll get right to it. John chapter 2. We'll look at the first 12 verses of John chapter 2, and that's where we'll camp out for the rest of our time today. John records in John chapter 2, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were a set of six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them, them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it, and when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made to wine, <clears throat> the water that was made to wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Three ways that Jesus demonstrates to the world that he alone is God. One, uh, the marriage. Two, the miracle. And three, the pour it out. Let's look at the marriage first. Uh, uh, the great news is Jesus was there for one purpose. Really, like he went with one purpose, and that's to celebrate marriage. Jesus celebrates marriage. Uh, if you're married, Jesus celebrated your marriage. That's something to behold all by itself. Like he instituted it, he gets the opportunity to celebrate. John records that Jesus, his disciples, and Mary... His brothers were at this wedding in the Cana of Galilee. They were there to witness and to celebrate the brand new union of a man and a woman. The biblical definition of marriage, of course, is one man, one woman for a lifetime. One man, one woman for a lifetime. And John says, on the third day, uh, not, because, uh, not because it was the day of the week, like that's not what he's talking about. When we have a wedding celebration, we have a, we have a wedding, we have a, a reception, normally you have a reception afterwards, right? And then what? Like the bridegroom, bride and groom, they're whisked away, you know, with their hair full of rice or confetti or bubbles. Like, who had the bubble wedding? Don't be bashful, you can raise your hand. Nobody? 
Nobody had the bubble wedding. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, they're scared to death that the birds may eat rice, although rice has been around for thousands of years, and birds have eaten it for thousands of years. But they're scared to death that somehow the rice is going to kill the birds, blah, blah, blah. So now what? It's the confetti. It's the bubbles. You know, like, whatever. I don't know why I got off on that. But when John says, on the third day, it was because first century weddings were not just a one-day event. They were like a week-long event. This was like a week-long party. So you would have the ceremony, but you would have a whole week of celebration, right? There was no running off, you know, to Cancun, or there was no, you know, hustling down to Maui. Uh, It was just everybody stuck around, and everybody partied for a full week. And so when he says on the third day, he's talking about the third day of the celebration, not the third day of the week or the third day of the month. He's talking about the third day of the celebration. It was a huge event. And in the first century, if the, the, the danger was having such a big... Who, I'm going to have you vote again. Who here has planned a wedding before? Raise your hand. I'm not raising my hand because uh, I didn't do much planning at all. Right? Like a one-day event, it's a massive thing to prepare for, Right? Like, just if you just think of your own wedding, if you think of, of the weddings you've been to, you think, man alive, who could pull this all off? It's a huge shindig. When our kids got married, it was this massive deal. And we spent, you know, all this time in preparation, and it's like, boom, then it's over, right? Then you're scrambling to try to get everything packed up before it gets dark. You guys all know what I'm talking about. Well, in the first century, this was a week-long event. It was just a huge camp out, let's just have a great time. And there was one thing that everybody feared, and that's running out of supplies. Like, I remember, you know, when Jonathan and Michaela got married, we, were, we were, weren't sure we were going to have enough pulled pork. Remember that? We ate pulled pork for a year. There was plenty of pulled pork. Right? But we were a little panicked that we would run out. So it's like, ah, just get, you know, three or four more, whatever. And uh, mom will take care of it. That was kind of our, our thing. Mom will take care of it. In the first century, if they ran out, they ran out. Like that ended the party early. That was it. It was done. It was over. And in that day, if you, especially if you ran, not, not just out of food, if you ran out of wine, everybody was leaving because there was nothing else to drink. And so they're in this situation there. They're in this, this quandary. It's like, uh-oh. Uh, we didn't pack enough crates. They're not enough, they're, they're gone. We're out. And somehow, somehow in the mix, the word got to Mary, whether she was part of the backdrop of the story. We've all seen the first episodes of The Chosen, so, right? Somehow the word gets to Mary, and Mary immediately goes into solution mode, as most mothers do, and says, all right, we, I, hey, I got, I got a solution for you guys. <laughs> I know a guy. That's like Mary's opportunity to say, Hey, I know a guy, right? The reply often is uh, a lot of people spend, and I'm not going to spend that much time. Jesus says to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Uh, In our English vernacular, that sounds um, pretty crass, pretty disrespectful. Uh, It's not so in the original language, really. Uh, It's just the way that that it's translated. more importantly, he says here, he says, my hour has not yet come. 
A lot's been made of this interchange. I'll say this about it. Both Mary and Jesus had an understanding of who Jesus was. Do we understand that? Like, like both of them had a real sharp understanding of who Jesus really was. Nobody else knew that. She knew that because she gave birth to him. He knew it. He knew who he was. Mary was looking for a solution to the problem. And the difference between her looking for a solution to the problem and where Jesus' perspective was, she was looking for a solution to the problem, but Jesus was waiting for permission from the Father. Right? He, he, he wasn't sure. That's why he said, I, I don't think my hour has yet come. And it wasn't that he was indecisive about who he was. He was wanting to make sure that he didn't do anything out of step of the Father. Because if the Messiah does anything out of the step of the Father, he's not really the Messiah. So he's looking for permission. He's, he's, he's praying, if you will. He's scanning. He's thinking about, do I have the Father's permission to do what's being asked? She's looking for a solution to the problem. He's waiting for permission from the Father. At that intersection, at the intersection of problem and permission, is what I believe is the best advice in the whole of the Bible. Like if there's one phrase that you could say or that could be said about Jesus, it's what, Je it's what Mary says here. Verse 5, his mother says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Like that's the best advice in life. Can you think of a better phrase out of the, can you? I mean, we have a, one of our previous pastors here in the audience. Can you think of a better phrase, Earl, in all of the Bible than to simply boil it down to, whatever Jesus says, just do it. Forget about the Nike commercials. That doesn't matter. Don't worry about Nike. It's all based on Greek mythology. I'm basing it on what Jesus, who Jesus is. And when somebody says, whatever he does, whatever he says, just do that. That's the best advice in all of life. Like if I, had, if I had two seconds to spend with somebody, this would, be the, this would be the phrase. This would be the idea. This would be the encouragement. Hey, whatever he says, whatever Jesus says, just do it. And that's what we're here to look at today. Whatever Jesus says, just do it. We can overarch that phrase... We can put it over every part of our lives. We can live by that advice. We can overarch that, that sentence, that advice at work. We can put it in front of our finances. We can put it in front of our marriages. It's advice to raise your kids by. It's, it's, it's advice to be a great parent. If you want to be a great parent, whatever Jesus says, just do that. Right? If you're starting up a business, whatever Jesus says, just do that if you're starting up a business. If you're shifting gears and, and you're in a different season of life, maybe you're like Tammy and I, just freshly empty nester. Right? I won't... I, I have more that goes with the woohoo, but... I will say this, hey, whatever Jesus says, if you're a newly empty nester, whatever Jesus says, do that, right? If you're thinking about retirement, 
right? You're getting close. Maybe you're whatever Jesus says about that phase of your life. Just do that. Just do that, right? You can take this advice and really all of life can sit underneath that phrase. And Jesus is all in. He's all in. And I do want to say particularly, because this is in the context of a wedding, that Jesus is all in for your marriage. Right? Whatever he says. Because, hey, our society and your enemy, the devil, and your flesh are going to do all they can to goof things up. We've seen it. We've lived it. We've experienced it. We've seen it in others. Not that we should be judging them. We should worry about our own stuff. Right? It's easy to get sideways in our relationships, specifically our marriages. And so particularly when it comes to, and I know this is dealing more with uh, resolving a conflict, but this conflict was in, the, it was in the atmosphere of a brand new bride and groom. Right? So they're not exempt. You know that if you've been married at any time at all, hey, it didn't take long for the honeymoon to wear off. And you got down to, uh, you know, who ends up with 60 to 70% of the sheets every night and who gets cold? So whatever Jesus says, we've all seen that meme, you know, like we're like, like got his and hers, but her side's like, you know, this much and his side of the sheets are like this. Fortunately, I have a secret weapon, Daniel. I'm like an absolute inferno sleeping. So I don't require a whole lot. Why did I go there? That doesn't have anything to do with this. Abort, abort. If you can't laugh about yourself, who can you laugh at? <laughs> Volunteers sign up in the back. There will be a clipboard from this church for sure. All right, number two. I think I've exhausted that enough. I want to get to this idea. Uh, Jesus is all in for celebrating marriage. The second thing is this. Jesus demonstrates his power in the miracle. He demonstrates his power in the miracle. As I mentioned earlier, he was looking for permission from the Father. Somewhere in all of that, and we don't have it, but somewhere in that, the Father said, give him the green light and said, go for it. Resolve this problem for people. Demonstrate who you are. Demonstrate your power and your majesty and your glory. Go for it. He had the permission. Now, I read this article about this because I wanted to dig in a little bit. And those of us that are kind of science geeks, we can, uh, we can really get tuned into this. Uh, <clears throat> but the reality is, is the word just says, like he said, hey, go fill up these water pots. These water pots were, were huge, tw- what, 20, 30 gallons. And they were for purification. A lot's been said about all of that and the Jewish rituals and, and all that goes with all of that. I want to give you a different look at this. Christian scientist and author Cliff Lewis, who's a, got a lot of extra letters behind his name, he's a PhD, he said this in this article. This is how crazy this miracle is, by the way. He says this, at a, mon- let me start over. At a molecular level, the water basic, is basically hydrogen and oxygen. Yeah, I follow that. Uh, the water that was basically hydrogen and oxygen was changed into wine that contained sugars, yeast, and water. 
In that, they contain carbon and nitrogen along with the oxygen and the hydrogen. Thus, by changing water into wine, Jesus demonstrates his authority over even the atomic structure of atoms by commanding oxygen and hydrogen atoms to disassemble and reform into other atoms of different configurations. You guys following me? Everybody got their science on? Now, here's what he says about that whole thing. The amount of energy it would take to perform this atomic deconstruction and reconstruction is staggering. This intermolecular energy being released is the source of the explosive energy of an atomic bomb. However, since Jesus caused the wine atoms to come back together, he would have to put this astronomical amount of energy into the atoms in order to have them reconstruct to do so without any visible energy transformation of the liquid because John says that John does not say that anything about the people noticing the transformation. In other words, the servants didn't see anything change. That's what he's saying. The servants didn't notice any change. This is, this is how crazy it really is, right? So, I'll, re- I'll reread that sentence. To do so without any visible energy transformation of the liquid indicates a mastery of natural law far beyond our current comprehension. And he accomplished it with no physical exertion. With this single act, Jesus proves that the basic forces in nature are at his command and control. Certainly, one who controls the basic forces in nature controls all of nature. Thus, Jesus truly revealed his complete control of the physical universe through this act. Talk about coming into ministry full throttle, right? Like, it wasn't any, that's why I said it's not like a shell game. Like, he didn't start out on the sidewalk with music in the background, you know, shuffling something underneath something, slide a hand. He came out of the gate showing that he's in complete control of everything, and I mean everything down to the smallest particle. That's how awesome Jesus is, amen? It's great. Think about it. Jesus rearranged the molecular structure of a liquid. Why did he do that? I mean, obviously, to demonstrate his glory, for sure. But the secondary reason is he did that to be a blessing to people. He did that so that the celebration of the institution of marriage could continue. They're only three days in, right? We got four days to go. We got four, this is a week long event. We got four days to go. So you don't want people to leave early. You don't want them to stay too late. But you don't want people leaving early. He demonstrates. His majesty, so that people could continue to celebrate marriage. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Now, way back in the book of John, chapter 20, verse 30, tells us why Jesus did what he did in in another light. And it says this, verse 30 and 31, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, but these, John says, but this event in chapter 2, John says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life in His name. That's why He did them. It wasn't just to show that He had the power. It's to show that He was God. It's to show that, that uh, and demonstrate so that people would believe, would believe who He says He is. That's what I say all the time. You don't have to believe me. You go do your own homework right? Do, read your own Bible. 
But you have to, we all have to answer this one fundamental question. Is Jesus who, who he says that he is? That's the fundamental question of all of life. If G, is Jesus who he says he is? You figure it out. Right? I don't say that like snarkily. I just say that like people have to figure it out. I had to figure it out. And you had to figure it out. Notice the parallel nature of John 20, 30 and 31 and 2 Kings 19, 19. Right? There's a parallel there. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. 2 Kings 19. That, that you would demonstrate to the kingdoms of the earth that you alone are God. That's the parallel to the two. That's why I brought up the story of Hezekiah's prayer in the first place. Now, number three, as we try to land the plane and keep the wings on, number three is, is that this miracle is, was not meant to stay in the jug. It wasn't meant to stay in the container, right? Like the whole point that Jesus would turn water into wine, I mean, if you can stretch it out, there's obviously many points, but you could step back and say, the one point that is true about the whole thing is, is that it was meant to be poured out. It was meant to be enjoyed. It was part to, supposed to be part of the celebration. It was, part, it was supposed to be a, a, a part of the party, part of the reception, the week-long event. So the miracle then is meant to be poured out. The miracle is meant to be poured out. The cultural view of thriving is based on this consumer mentality, a kind of the get-all-you-can mentality that I talked about earlier. But the, world, the biblical worldview is based on giving, or we can use our phrase today. The biblical worldview of thriving is really being poured out. That's the beauty of this whole picture. It's meant to be poured out. Three examples of being poured out the worship team just to start rifling their way back up here there's three examples there's there's many examples really in the bible especially in the new testament the three that i picked for today was that he himself jesus was poured out for the forgiveness of sins that's why we celebrate communion matthew 26 26 and 28 says and they were eating and this is towards the you know the night before and jesus as they as they were eating Verse 26, Jesus took the bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. Verse 27, then he took the cup and he gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus poured out himself. We see it from start to finish. We see it from, from this wedding in Cana of Galilee all the way not just to the cross, don't stop at the cross because that's not the whole gospel. All the way to post-resurrection, we see Jesus pouring himself out, pouring himself into the lives of his followers, pouring himself into people all through Israel. That's why Jesus, that's, Jesus poured himself out a time and time again. Oh, did he get a break? Yep, he stepped into the wilderness to take a break from time to time, absolutely. Should we get a break? Yep, Absolutely. The question is, is not you getting plenty of rest, although you need plenty of rest, and we need lots of mar we need margin in life, like if our culture doesn't have something, it's the fact that we just run 24-7. I'm the most guilty of everyone in this room. I guarantee that that's true, right? I guarantee that that's true. 
I run on a thin margin line. But the reality is, is we need plenty of rest. We focus on the rest. I want you to refocus this way. How are you being poured out this week? How are you, like Christ, being poured out for your people? How, like you are, uh, like Christ, are you being poured out for your neighbors, the people down the street, the people up the street, the people at the gas station? Are you being poured out? You have to ask yourself that question. There's another situation that the Apostle Paul talked to Titus about, and that has to do with our sanctification work. And I'll, I'll give you a little context. In Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, <clears throat> Paul's talking about this. He says, for we ourselves, uh, and so he given a little context of how they used to be and now how they are. Paul says, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Not a real good scene. Uh, but when the kindness, here it is, and when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So here's the Spirit's job, who he poured out on us abundantly. That's how, that's how it happens. The Holy Spirit. So, so Jesus is poured out for his people. Now you've got the Holy Spirit who's poured out to help you become who Christ intended you to be, right? Not a better version of you, not a better, I, I, don't, I don't need, I'll guarantee you, Tammy does not need Mark 2.0, right? She don't need a better version of me. She needs a Jesus version of me. That's the truth. So it's not a better version of you. Like This isn't some, you know, song and dance, you know, make your life better uh, because you can do better or have a few parlor tricks to make it happen. Like Jesus wants his life to be lived through you. So he pours out his Holy Spirit on his people. The Holy Spirit's poured out in that regeneration process, in that remake process. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The last one before we get back up on our feet and worship the Lord at the end is that the Apostle Paul himself was poured out for the gospel. He was poured out for the gospel. He tells the church at Philippi in chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, in the last few instructions there, he says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault. Notice how he phrases it. Notice the uh, decay in this statement. Harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What a wonderful picture. What if a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit's regenerating work in God's people coming to bear in the midst of, and exactly what we've been talking about now for seven weeks, cultures that are in decay. The Apostle Paul says, hey, not only is this culture just like slight, it's not like a little rusty. He's not saying that. He says this culture is perverse and wicked, right? It's horrible. It's crooked. And he says, hey, you're not that way. No, you shine like lights in the world. And he says, holding fast to the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. 
a little personal reflection that he's praising them to say that, you know, hey, his, his, his effort meant something. His trials meant something. The fact that, that he was stoned and beaten and flogged and whipped, like if, you, if, if we got a, like a modern day version, if the Apostle Paul just miraculously walked in here right now, like he would be kind of unrecognizable. This guy took so many beatings for the gospel of Jesus. It's insane if you do the, if you, if you take all that's recorded in the Gospels and in the book of Acts and lay them in a list, and I've done this before, this guy got trashed by the culture. I mean, absolutely thrashed. And he says, hey, none of that was in vain. And here's a statement, verse 17, yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and will rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. He's encouraging them. Hey, this is all good. I'm willing to do it. You're willing to do it. Let's rejoice that, 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 we, that we get to serve the Lord in this way, even if it means pain, even if it means struggle, right? Pour yourselves out. If I have one thing to say to you guys, don't ever, don't ever Look with regret towards the idea that your job as a Christ follower is to pour yourselves out in the lives of the people around you. That's what we're here for. That's why God recreated us in his image, in the likeness of Christ. And the wine was only enjoyed after it was poured out. This miracle was symbolic of the next three years, Jesus pouring his life into his people. And it caused people to believe. Verse 11, we'll just end with that. The beginning signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. They believed in him. That's why we're here. That's why we celebrate. Let's rise and worship him as we close.